Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Welcome, everybody, to The Important Part. This is the first regular episode of 2024. And this time, I have a guest for you who has the greatest amount of Outlook material. I'm so excited to have her. Cameron Dawson is here with me. Cameron is New Edge Wealth's Chief Investment Officer. She helps lead the development of New Edge Wealth's investment themes, strategies, and market views, while also working closely with the firm's advisors and clients. Prior to joining New Edge Wealth, Cameron was the chief market strategist at Fieldpoint Private Securities and a senior equity analyst at Bank of America. Throughout her career, she's developed extensive experience in macroeconomics and implementing forward-thinking investment themes and asset allocation strategies. So without further ado, let's get to the Outlook episode with Cameron. Cameron, thank you so much for joining me on the important part. Welcome aboard for our Outlook episode for 2024. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, of course. So this is usually the month where people listen to the podcast more than any other month because it's the one where we're supposed to lay out the groundwork of everything that's going to happen this year. And we're supposed to be right about all of it. So no pressure, but uh, (laughs) we'll run through just a few things that I think are obviously top of mind for investors. But before we do that, let's look backwards for a minute. And 2023 was surprising to everybody in so many ways, regardless of which side of the fence you were on, bull or bear. So let's think about that for a second. What surprised you the most about 2023? And what are some of the things that played out maybe the way you expected? And maybe there's none of those. That's okay, too. That is an option. Yeah, well, lots of surprises last year. And and I think if I were to reduce it down to the one relationship that was the most intriguing or surprising that where we were wrong was the relationship between interest rates, mostly real interest rates and valuations. So our framework to start 2023 was saying, hey, you know, we, we have seen valuations move lower We've seen uh, exposure to risk assets move lower. Sentiment is pretty washed out. However, we expect the U.S. economy to remain stronger and inflation to remain hotter than what the Fed was forecasting, which would require the Fed to stay tighter and raise interest rates a lot more than what the bond market was forecasting. Mm -hmm. And so even though there wasn't going to be some big collapse in earnings because of some imminent recession, we weren't in the imminent recession camp at the beginning of the year, we thought that the pressure from the Fed of staying tight and keeping liquidity tight would keep a lid on valuations, which just meant that you would get subpar returns and that leadership would not favor those that needed big multiple expansion in order to do well. Of course, when we look at at the pathway for 2023, that expectation about valuations was not right. Valuations expanded materially. They were up 20% or 18% for the S&P 500. They were up well over 30%, 35% for the NASDAQ. Gross stocks saw huge valuation expansion. Even stocks like an Apple, for example, saw its valuation go up by 45%. Wow. And 
that was a complete breakdown of the relationship with real interest rates, which had typically been tied at the hips, hip and the inverse correlated to valuations. That completely broke down. And I think looking back, the thing that we just didn't under uh, or didn't appreciate enough was a how much positioning was was going to be a key driver of markets and performance, but which we identified positioning being light, but thought that it could get even lighter based on historical precedent. But at the same time was liquidity. And liquidity was a tailwind. And this is the real paradox of 2023. Fed stills raising rates. QT is still happening. And yet liquidity, if you look at broad measures, including things like treasury issuance, um, how the treasury was issuing things with bills versus coupon issuance, the treasury's balance at the Fed being a source of things that could actually boost reserves. When you put all of that together, liquidity was actually a tailwind for markets expanded over the course of 2023. And so probably one of the biggest questions for 24 is if liquidity will be as supportive for markets this year as it was last year, because we do know there's a strong relationship between liquidity and valuations. You're starting the year at high valuations. If liquidity continues to be supportive, then I think valuations can continue to expand, but it flips in the other direction. That's when you know, people will look around for a narrative to say, oh, this is why the market's going down, when in reality, it could just be liquidity, as nebulous as it might be. And one of the things that is interesting, we don't talk about this as much anymore because it's so far in the rearview mirror, it seems like, is the regional bank crisis. And you know, we came into 2023 with the expectation, like you said, that liquidity was going to dry up a lot faster than it did and that there was going to be a limitation and a lot more constriction around how quickly and easily capital could flow around the economy. And then the regional bank crisis happened and there was more liquidity pumped into a, a portion of the system. But I think we need to not underappreciate the mental effect that that had on investors where, okay, we hit the skids. It, it scared everybody. It was a risk. It, it risked being contagious, bleeding into other parts of the financial system and capital markets. And in two seconds flat, the Fed was there, saved it, pumped liquidity in and so-called solved the problem. So then the expectation, I think the conditioning that we've been through as investors, which I believe did support a lot of the asset movement post-regional bank crisis in March, is that even if things do get tough, even if liquidity does start to constrict too much or causes a problem that was unforeseen, that will just be saved. And that raises such an important point about the mechanisms of monetary policy, because there's two really big buckets as to how monetary policy impacts the economy. The first one is the actual interest rate, the actual cost of money, the idea that if it costs more money to borrow, then your hurdle rate for making an incremental investment is higher. And so maybe at the margin, it causes people to pull back on making investments, pull back on purchases of things that require financing, and that slows the economy. That's the real economy impact. The other impact is in the expectations channel. And so much of monetary policy is all about expectations. Right. And it's interesting, you go back to the initial discussions around quantitative easing. One of the reasons why they did QE is because they wanted to have, in addition to pushing people out the risk spectrum and, and adding liquidity into the system, but also to lengthen the amount of time that it would take 
for people to start expecting higher rates, meaning that there's so many more steps that you have to take before you get to rate hikes. And what we can see in 2022 is that even though rates weren't actually that high in 2022, you saw a much sharper slowdown in interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. You saw housing slow down and, and cars, so durable goods prices cracked really hard and went into disinflation. And you saw MA dry up, IPOs dried up, liquidity sensitive parts of the market, even though on an absolute basis it was still abundant, it was the expectation that the Fed was going to be raising rates that got all of that activity to pull in rather substantially very materially. So to your point, the signaling from 2023 is, hey, we're going to step in when we hit the skids, effectively sent a signal that the expectation is no longer tighter policy. The expectation going forward is easier policy. And I think if you're going to make a bull case for the next couple of years, it's that that expectation channel on the anticipation of of rate cuts going forward re-enlivens animal spirits. It causes M&A to come back. It causes IPOs to come back. People say, hey, I'll make that investment because I think in six months time, my cost of capital is going to be lower than it is today versus two years ago when people go, oh, the cost of capital is going up and I don't know when it's going to stop. Now, all of this could change if the Fed changes its tune, right? If the Fed starts to sound more hawkish and say, okay, well, we know that we said we might do interest rate cuts, but the data doesn't support it. But you'd have to see a pretty meaningful uptick in something like uh, uh, inflation in order to to cause the Fed to become more hawkish. The other aspect of things is that I would be very cautious in the bad news is good news kind of of, uh, mentality of thinking that, let's say we have a big uptick in unemployment, big meaning go above 4%, or really weak non-farm payrolls data. That might mean that the Fed is easier. I don't know if risk assets would really like that because you'd have to raise the question of, you know, what does this mean for underlying growth and are growth expectations properly calibrated? Yeah, well, and it's always going to be an order of magnitude. So we want the economy to slow down, but we don't want it to stop. We want it to cool, but we don't want it to freeze. And where is that line? And I think everybody's got a different line drawn in the sand of I'm comfortable up to that point. I am no longer comfortable if it gets cooler than that. And I think that's what we're going to see in 2024 is where investors line is drawn and and when people start to get nervous about a cooling. So speaking of a cooling, starting this year, Soft landing seems to be the consensus, and it took on a lot more supporters towards the end of last year as the market rallied ferociously through about that third or fourth week in December. Where do you fall on the landing camp? Just help us understand your optimism or pessimism uh, going into 2024. So we just released an outlook that is called, and it's from an old Heinlein book called Stranger in a Strange Land, um, but we're calling it Stranger in a Strange Landing. And the idea behind that is that we really have never been here before. We have never come out of what has been this shutting down of the economy that was filled with so much fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus at the same time, pulled back the monetary stimulus, kept the fiscal stimulus, uh, and all of the disruptions that happened to the economy is one of the reasons why this whole period is just so very strange. Mm -hmm. And in a strange period, I think that 
the imperative is that you have to stay very nimble and very responsive to the entirety of the data. I think one of the best analysis of this current moment for markets is the, or analogies, is of the the blind men and the elephant. And there's blind men and they all touch a different portion of the elephant and they come to a different conclusion about what they're touching. And because they can only see one part of it. And I think that as we look at all of these different data points, you can find like the blind man, a portion of the elephant, you touch the trunk and you think it's a rope, you touch you know, the, the, the foot, you think it's a, a, a tree trunk. The reality is that it will be this confluence of data and they're all disagreeing at this point that will determine the direction of where we go. At this point, we don't see enough deterioration in the employment data, which is the crux of everything to say that we are going to have a recession in the first half of 2024. We appreciate the fact that you have uh, the deterioration in the quits ratio or the falling in the quits ratio, job openings have fallen, work week hours have fallen, which suggests that companies are looking for ways to reduce employment expense without having to go and completely lay off workers. There are suggestions of this deterioration around the surf, around the corners, but not enough to say that we are going to, within the next three months, print a negative non-farm payrolls. It can happen over the course of the next year. And I think it's a good question for all of us to say, under what circumstances, backdrop for corporate profits uh, and backdrop for sentiment, would you likely see a negative print non-farm payrolls? And then it's, then it's the question of, does the movement from 3.6, 3.7 and unemployment stop at 4.1%, uh, which is what the Fed projects, or does it go above 5%, meaning a little bit of easing or a little bit of weakness turns into a lot of weakness and it becomes kind of an avalanche. And that would be the biggest risk as we go through the year. I'm willing to make a projection for the first half. Um, I will put a probability on the second half of saying, I, if I look at consumer and corporate balance sheets, they don't look weak enough yet to suggest that we are are um, you know, really playing with fire here uh, when it comes to a slowing economy and issues on balance sheets, which would say is that I would put the probability of a 2025 recession as being higher than a 2024 recession. And I think that as we roll into 2025, we have to remember there's a lot of debt refinancing that starts to happen in that year. And it starts a bit in late 24, but 25 is when a lot of it kicks in. And that's the moment when you start to feel the pinch, actual pinch, that real economy pinch from a tighter monetary policy. So I think the whole notion is being one of realizing how strange and odd where we are um, and being nimble and not trying to project out too much because the data is likely to change really quickly. Yeah. Well, I think I think we're on the same page in a lot of ways. My outlook was titled A Cycle for the Ages. Yeah. Um, which is sort of an ode to that same sentiment that this is just so odd. This is an entirely new environment for people to be going through and navigating through. And there are some pieces of it that I think 
it's just not really ever that different this time, right? The way that monetary policy does constrict activity and the effects that the Fed needs to see in order to bring inflation down, the fact that inflation does pinch consumers eventually, even if there was a bunch of cash on the sidelines. And we'll get into some of this later. But, you know, the the big question that I keep asking myself is, well, if there's so much cash, if that's the argument, if there's so much cash, then why in the world are credit card balances at all-time highs? Why did people use buy now, pay later at record numbers over the holiday season? Why have delinquency rates started to tick up? And another part, another section of my outlook was called wrapped in contradictions because Mm -hmm. there are so many out there. Yeah. And your point on delinquency rates is one that is so interesting because if you look at credit card balances as a percentage of disposable income, there's still a about a third lower than they were going into the great financial crisis, which would suggest Mm -hmm. that consumers have room to take on more debt before they are truly and utterly stretched and where we have an issue with consumer balance sheets. But to your point, you're seeing delinquencies go up. So if you're looking at the aggregate data, you're saying, well, there's more room for debt. So why are delinquencies going up? And at the same time, the employment market still is really strong. So the fact that delinquencies are going up as much as they are, and yet we're not seeing negative prints and non-farm payrolls, that's that's one of those contradictions that should kind of raise eyebrows a bit to say, if we were to see issues in the labor market, where would this delinquency data go? And maybe it's because there's so much difference between high income and lower income borrowers, and, and that can be skewing some of the data. But you know, I think resting on these big conclusions of the consumer balance sheet is fine, so we never have to worry about it. Maybe the reality is, is that you're starting to sow the seeds of the next cycle over the course of this past cycle that you know we should never become complacent about any of this data. Um, just because, like I said, that that those delinquencies, yes, they're low. I get it. They're well below where they were. Um, um, even pre-pandemic, um, they're at a lower rate. However, they've moved up enough that you know, it's in the normalization camp. It's not in the outright weakening camp, but is does normalization turn into weakening? And I think that's probably the key question for a lot of data in 2024. Yeah. Okay. So we happen to be recording this about a week and a half, two weeks before it actually posts, but we are recording it on the day that December CPI was released. And those numbers came in higher than expected. So CPI, I won't say it re-accelerated, but it came in higher than consensus, even though consensus was expecting an uptick compared to last month. But here we sit at a sort of a, a pinnacle of disagreement in markets where a lot of what had been priced in, at least this is my opinion or or my take on it, a lot of what was priced in to the rally as CPI came in cooler in November and then again in December is that it was coming down at a pretty linear rate and that it would continue coming down. It was, And we had all but solved the problem and the Fed could start cutting. A lot of that was the baseline for what drove the rally, why people got so excited because inflation had been public enemy number one. So with today's data or just the data in general, what is your outlook on inflation for the year? Are you worried about a reacceleration? And then I'm going to make that a two-part question. So are you worried about a reacceleration? And what about the components that people seem to explain away? Right. So inflation came in hot, but it was all because of shelter and that's going to go away. So if you just take shelter out, everything is fine. 
my usual response to that is, but we can't take shelter out as consumers. We still have to buy shelter. So if inflation is still pressuring us, it does matter. Maybe it doesn't matter when we're looking at it for what the Fed is trying to target, but it does matter in the grand scheme of things. Well, even that that core services at shelters still remains elevated and above pre-pandemic levels. So as you slice and dice the numbers, even that would suggest that you know calling for complete and total victory is premature. Now saying that we've made progress, yes, certainly we've made progress. And I think anybody, you know, we we are very attuned to the risks of a reacceleration in inflation, not because we think that you see some kind of 1970s big double peak in inflation um, and not calling for a return to the 9% level that we re- reached back in 2022. Um, that That's not the base case. What we're talking about instead is that there's been distinct factors that have given the Fed degrees of freedom over the last call it six to eight months. One of those factors has been rapidly falling oil prices. Oil prices for gasoline prices went from $3.90 a gallon in September, and they're at $3.08 a gallon today as of recording. So you've gone from oil prices over the last six months have been a big benefit to falling headline inflation I think we have to be attuned to the risk that if oil prices were to pick back up uh, for reasons that, you know, we haven't we haven't seen even big exogenous shocks necessarily cause oil prices to move higher. But it's something that not to rule it out, because if you do see that headline inflation moves in the other direction, that kind of ruins the Fed's ability to have those degrees of freedom. Now, the Fed does look at core, but we do know core inflation, meaning X. Uh, food x energy however we do know that exogenous things like higher energy prices become endogenous meaning they metastasize through the economy and what ends up happening is that it filters in through shipping costs and it filters in through cost of living adjustments and so we we can't completely write that off it's more volatile than the core number but it's important Another, the last step in the one that we're watching closely, and we agree, you look at durable goods prices, that's the pandemic inflation. That's the inflation that is has actually been in deflation now for a year. Durable goods CPI has been negative for a year. Uh, so yes, it was transitory. We know this. It's been in disinflation for two years. It peaked in January of 2022. That That's not the debate here. The debate here is in that core services X housing to say, has there been a structural change to the labor market where if you were to grow the economy above trend, that would result in higher overall inflation in the economy, meaning that there is in the services line of the of of CPI would above trend growth result in above trend inflation or above the target inflation that we experienced over the last cycle. Growth doesn't have to be bad in and of itself. However, with the easing and financial conditions that we've had, could we actually see that above trend growth result in a reacceleration in some of the wage inflation? There's a million ways to cut the wage data, and there are a lot of people who say it's solved, not a problem. Um, The one 
the measure that we're looking closely, and it is volatile, so don't read into it too much, is the NFIB Small Business Compensation Survey. Um, and that's pointing to small businesses indicating more wage increases. So it remains to be seen. Um, there's a lot of interesting supply-demand dynamics happening with the labor market, with immigration and new entrants um, that are worth having a discussion about. But we're not willing to say inflation fully vanquished, which just means that we actually think that there's a floor under yields um, and that if yields o- become oversold to the downside, that that's likely a room to, to lighten up. Um, that yields likely don't go, you know, we don't see them going back to 3% without some kind of recession, um, that, you know, a lot more downside in yields will be more difficult given this backdrop on potential reacceleration. So what do we think the Fed does with this information? So what was interesting to me today, at least, and again, by the time this releases, this, this statement will be a week or two old, but inflation came in hotter than expected yet the expectation for a March rate cut didn't really fall. It fell a little bit, but then it went right back up to where it had started. Do you think if the data continues at this clip, so let's say CPI even just stays steady or kind of hovers around this low threes area, and let's say the payrolls reports come in decently solid, nothing concerning, let's say unemployment stays under 4%, let's say it even stays under 3.9%, By March, I struggle to figure out why the Fed would start cutting that soon. And the other thing is, we've learned from Jerome Powell that he likes to be very transparent and get us ready for a move that they might make. So it's that whole, we're going to, we're going to start talking about talking about cutting, right? And then we're going to talk about cutting and then we're going to actually cut. So by the time it happens, we're ready for it. We only have one Fed meeting between now and March. So they've got one chance to get everybody ready and make it clear what they're going to do. And I just don't feel like that's enough time. Yeah, I, you know, I suppose we have a couple more inflation prints to to incorporate. And maybe that's why the market is going on. Oh, well, let's let's wait for for the January data and then we'll see, you know, then let's change the pricing of that. I tend to agree with you if 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 you hold everything constant uh, where it is, then doing a March rate cut seems premature, mostly with the backdrop of the distinct weakening and for easing in financial conditions that we've had, and that there is appreciation at the Fed that easier financial conditions are supportive for nominal growth, and nominal growth includes inflation. And so how much would their pivot from December uh, contribute to a potential reacceleration, or maybe the way to put it is the data working against them or not falling in their favor? So you know, I think that probably the market is is wanting to to be patient for the for you know for that other inflation data to come out. The last point I'd say on that though is that the market, uh, just like the Fed, has been wildly wrong about the path of rates, um, mm-hmm. time and time and time again, and it was you know wrong um, about how high rates would go at the beginning of 2022. It was wrong about expecting cuts in the summer of 2022, starting as early as 2023. And it was wrong 
all through the course of 2023 as to when cuts would start and when they would begin, how far they would go. So we have to remember to take the bond market with a grain of salt. It's about probabilities. It's not about exactitudes and that the bond market is pricing in a range of probabilities and assigning to each of these, to each of these range of outcomes, a different set of probabilities. And that's why, why it's wrong, um, though it, it still might be right, depending on how you think about it. So, you know, I, I'm not in the camp that they'll cut in March, um, but I'm willing to change my mind if I see data that, you know, would suggest, you know, a little bit more easing in the labor market and a little bit more of a glide path and inflation lower. But if those two things don't happen, I would put the probability of a March cut being far lower than what the market's pricing in today. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the consumer earlier. One of the things that if we stay on this inflation conversation for just a minute, even if inflation has come back down, we know that it's still growing. It hasn't deflated, right? Mm -hmm. So prices just stopped growing as quickly, but they're still growing. So then you have to ask the cumulative effect of inflation and how is that affecting consumers? I put some of this in my own outlook and the numbers now that we have new data probably can be updated, but the what I would call non-negotiable categories of spending, food, energy, transportation, and housing. All of those on a cumulative basis since pre-pandemic were up more than wages were up. Not a ton, but they were. I think transportation in particular was up 26 or 27%. Wage growth was only about 20.5%. So when you look at the cumulative effect, does that come home to roost at some point? And in that case, what happens to the savings rate in all of this? And do you watch the savings rate? Because that's something, too, that it's a data point that we don't hear about very often until it starts to ring the alarm bells. And it's not really ringing them right now. But is that something that we should start to keep an eye on in 2024? It's such an important point because you and I, you're sitting in a in a market seat we think about the world in terms of second derivatives. We think mm-hmm. about the rate of change and you go, oh, well, the rate of change is getting better. That's that's good news. But our lived experience as consumers is about absolute levels. And that price level being 20% plus higher, depending on what category you're looking at, does weigh on consumers. And I always find it interesting when, you know, banks will talk about and say, oh, well, you know, the consumers, uh, their their savings balance in the bank is 20% higher than it was pre-pandemic. Yeah, well, the price level is 20% higher. So those dollars don't go as far. Now, what I would say is that consumers you are seeing a recovery in consumer sentiment in the surveys. And that's just because the consumer sentiment has been just very correlated to real wage growth. So what we have seen lately is that as inflation has moderated, mostly because of oil prices in that year-over-year data over the last six months, but that falling oil price has allowed consumers to experience now positive real wage growth, meaning wages are still being sticky. And so they're, they're, they're being able to to get more for their money compared to over the last two years, really since 2021, consumer sentiment plunged right at the same time that real wage growth turned negative, meaning prices were rising faster than wages and they were losing purchasing power. So there is hope that if inflation continues to moderate, consumers feel better. They're not going to get back to that same price level. It's still going to be just as expensive in that sticker shock of me spending $6 for a cup of black coffee this morning going, how is this? 
what? I know. Like, humanly possible. Where? How do we mm-hmm. get here? However, um, the data would say that that you know consumers you know, are feeling better. But those are surveys. So watch what they yeah. do, not what they say. Remember, consumers felt terrible, but they kept spending all through the last couple of years. Wouldn't it be interesting if they started pulling back on spending, even though they said they were feeling better, just because they're starting to kind of tap out? I think on the savings rate, the thing that would be the most alarming is that if we saw it really kick up, um, meaning consumers cutting back on spending in order to save because they are afraid of losing their jobs or maybe they have lost their jobs um, or people around them are losing their jobs. Um, Usually that's when you see savings rates kick up and that's the start of a recession. Uh, And that savings rate has come down a lot, but obviously it's being and spending is being supplemented by an increase in debt. You know, as we talked about, there's room to take on more debt uh, in theory. Um, however, those delinquencies rising, despite there being room, is something that we should continue to watch closely. Yeah, good, good take. Okay, so let's let's transition into asset allocation. Give people something to walk away with that's actionable. So in broad strokes, I mean, over the last two years in particular, if we remember what happened in 2022, it was you know the first time in decades that stocks and bonds were both down double digits. And it was this the sky is falling kind of mentality. And then last year, bonds didn't do quite as well as stocks, but still the correlation stayed positive. Right. So this year in broad strokes, how do you feel about the diversification benefits of bonds where are you in the 60-40 as a live or dead camp? Yeah, look, I think that that the 60-40, it is alive, but people misunderstood the diversification role of bonds in 2022 because there's a very different, and this is just because we haven't had an inflation shock in so long. Bonds act very differently in an inflation scare than they do in a recession scare. So people think, oh, well, when my stocks go down, at least people will have a flight to safety in bonds and my bonds can do better. That's the point of 60-40. But where the wheels fall off on that is that, well, I definitely don't want bonds because they're mispriced for the inflation backdrop and stocks are getting hit because of you know rising interest rates. It's a circular argument, but rising interest rates, tighter liquidity, and maybe fears of a recession. But remember, that recession never materialized. And so I think if we actually have a scenario where we have a recession and you see corporate profits get hit, bonds can do well in that environment. Um, Now, of course, then you have to raise the questions about what the supply and demand backdrop is for bonds at that time, meaning if we have a recession and you have Mm -hmm. a bunch of deficit spending kick in, Mm -hmm. you have an increase in supply, will that overwhelm what will be an increase in demand from flight to safety trades? It has worked most other cycles, um, meaning that you know people still wanted to buy bonds in the great financial crisis. They still wanted to buy bonds when when all of the spending was happening during COVID, uh, and part of that was because you had the back the backstop from uh, from the central banks being a buyer of those bonds with you. 
But I do think that bonds still have an important role in portfolios. You have to be very, very conscious about the risk you take with certain bonds, mostly within credit. Credit spreads have contracted a ton over the course of 2023. It's not to say that there isn't still value, but part of the reason why credit spreads contracted so much is because there wasn't a lot of new credit supply last year or over the past couple of years. But demand was higher for credit because all-in yields were higher. So you've seen this contraction in spreads, and I think always asking, am I being properly compensated for the risk that I'm taking? And does this risk contemplate any easing in the data? And if I do have easing in the data, am I caught flat-footed? So we're being hyper-selective in credit. Uh, When we think about building out bond portfolios, we still have exposure, but we have to be hyper-selective just because you'll get to that point where spreads are so tight that it's complacent, and then you open yourself up to a shock of risk. Right. Okay. So for investors who have money, and there are many out there, money in money market funds or treasuries, because of everything that transpired in 2023, we're getting paid five and a half percent to sit in a low to no risk asset. Lots of people jumped on that bandwagon. At what point, and, and maybe it won't happen in 2024, but at what point do investors start to look at that and say, this is no longer the attractive option, right? At what point do we see assets start to come out of money markets and treasuries and go go elsewhere? And then if if you want to answer it, where do you think they go? Yeah, you, the AAII, American Association of, of Individual Investors, publishes equity allocations for what their investors are reporting. And what you can see is that they peaked in 2021 around 70%. They fell down to 62-ish percent uh, uh, back in the end of 2022. They've climbed back to about 65%. So to your point, there is room for individual investors to get even more long equities. I think that you can make the argument that some institutional investors are far longer equities, meaning they're far more overweight after enduring the big move that we've had. But there is room for people to exit money market funds and go into equities um, uh, based on you know, going back to a prior peak if that happens. You know, I think that that role risk um, is you know, the, the key question on stay, staying in cash, which is this idea that if you own 5% today, when you have to roll that over as it matures? Do you reset at lower rates? And that's where, you know, I think each individual investor needs to look at at the reason why they're owning the cash. Are they owning the cash because they didn't want to be invested in risk assets? Or are they owning the cash because they need the liquidity? And because they think that they need, you know, to have an opportunity or that they're going to need that cash to to do something else with it. And understanding of if the cash that you have um, is just an opportunity cost kind of bucket, meaning I would have have invested it in uh, in risk assets, whether it's in fixed income or equities or alternative investments. That's where, you know, being disciplined at saying, having a plan to say, if the market pulls back by this percent, uh, then I should be allocating more of my cash. And if it pulls back by 20%, I probably should be allocating even more of my cash. Not to say that the market won't go down further, but we know that investors get so emotional at during drawdowns and during weak markets. And that, you know, Walter Deemer, who is one of the, the greatest technical analysts of all time, has a great book that I keep here somewhere uh, that says, when it comes to time to buy, you won't want to. And so having a plan prior to 
that time to buy is one of the most powerful ways that you can keep yourself from yourself. And then you're having to balance and assess, you know, how much do I actually need for liquidity? And you meaning I need to spend this cash. And then then you have to see, you, you, you might have to accept the lower yields if you do need that liquidity. So it's always balancing what the long-term goal is for the allocation, how far away you are off from that, and then having a plan to get yourself to that based on the path of the market. All right, we're going to finish the episode with the hot minute. I love this part because, and you can give a one word answer. That's all we really need. Or you can take it, you know, a sentence or two. That's fine. But it's basically three rapid fire questions asking your opinion. So we're going to get started. First question is, which major index do you see coming out on top this year? I think the Dow, just because I, I think that wow. there is a chance that it's going to lean a little bit more value. I think growth is going to continue to lead in the short run, um, but there's an, the valuations and positioning is so stretched um, that I think NASDAQ and then you know, S&P 500 is effectively a growth index now. Yeah, it sure is. Okay. Top sector pick for 2024. Healthcare. Ooh, love it. Lastly, when is the first Fed cut? May or June. Okay. Uh, you know what? We're aligned. At least on those last two, we're aligned. I actually think uh, the major index, and maybe this is kind of a trick answer, but I think the major index that has a chance to do really well in 24, if we if we go through a slowdown and come out on the other side of it, I think small caps can can pull ahead. Yeah. Yeah. If, if it, Yes. After the movement down and then... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, then that rebound up. Once the yeah. Fed starts cutting rates, if if you're in the idea that liquidity is becoming more abundant, small caps have typically done well. They t- they do well coming out of recessions when right. when the zone is getting flooded uh, with liquidity. Um, they don't do as well going into recessions. Right. But if we don't have a recession and rates are falling, small caps can can do rather well. It just scares me that they become all of a sudden very consensus. <laughs> I know. Well, I yeah, and I talked about this a little bit um, on a couple programs this week already that. They probably pull back from here. They've tried to get above a certain level so many times over the last 12 to 18 months, and they just can't break above it. But if you just look, if we're talking about valuations and things being extended, they're still pretty low compared to their own history and pretty low compared to the S&P. They're only in the 12th percentile if we're talking about PE multiples. So there's, I think there's, there's room to run there. But again, small caps are not, those are not trades. You don't go into small caps with the intention of coming out 30 days later. So if you're going to buy them, you have to buy it with the expectation that this is a hold strategy for a while and that you're going to live through parts of the cycle before it may come to fruition for you. I think if you can be selective within small caps and not just buying an index, that you actually have the opportunity to outperform because there's so many mispriced assets. Yeah. Well, Cameron, thank you so much for joining me, especially for an Outlook episode. I know that our listeners will love this one. So I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Liz. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, that wraps up our first regular episode of 2024 for an outlook from Cameron and just a few takeaways from what Cameron said about 
what's possibly to come this year. So in terms of optimism or pessimism, she says we've never seen a landing prospect quite like this one. And their outlook is actually titled Stranger in a Strange Landing. So it's important to stay nimble in this environment. Things can change very quickly, and it's quite unprecedented for investors to navigate these kinds of seas. The second thing that I took away from it is that she cautioned on the idea of thinking bad news is good news, which is something that markets and investors have been debating for a number of months, where bad news comes in and maybe it suggests that monetary policy will get easier, which had been a tailwind for stocks. But perhaps this year that shifts a little bit and bad news uh, is not quite as welcome and, and risk assets probably don't like it quite as much this time around. And then lastly, as for the consumer, because we always have to talk about the consumer, it's such a big part of our economy, and all of you listening to this are consumers. She says, watch what they do, not what they say. And what she meant by that is we talk a lot about these consumer sentiment surveys. There's the University of Michigan survey. There's the conference board survey. But for a long time in 2023, the surveys said things that were not so promising. Consumers had been answering the surveys in more of a bleak tone, but they kept spending. So we have to watch the actual activity data, the savings rate, retail sales, disposable income, the data that is actually reporting what consumers are doing rather than the sentiment surveys, which are very affected by inflation. That wraps it up. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to bringing you the next episode of The Important Part very soon. For more from me, read my weekly column every Thursday on the SoFi blog, or follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Liz Youngstrat. Tune in to the SoFi Daily podcast for five-minute daily episodes covering the top business, economic, and stock market news you need to start your day. The SoFi Daily pod is available on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out the SoFi Daily newsletter. You can sign up for the SoFi Daily to receive the latest financial news in your inbox every day. The important part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Carter Wogan, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com slash legal. Listener.